listening to the Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Toos, and today I'll be speaking with author Dennis Danvers about his novel, The Soothsayer and the Changeling. Dennis is the author of 10 novels, including the New York Times notable Circuit of Heaven. His writings have been in numerous publications, including Apex Magazine and Lightspeed. He taught fiction writing and science fiction writing at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond for over 30 years. Welcome to the show, Dennis. I'm glad, I'm glad you asked me. Good. Well, look, I usually start uh, by asking writers about their writing habits. You know, are there certain times of the day in which you write or a favorite place from which you write? You know, it's changed over the years. And um, way back when, I used to always, I, I'm a very early riser, and I would, you know, get up at four or five in the morning and start writing. Um, but raising children and other things, I've found I've got the skill of writing anywhere. Uh, taking my girls to ballet lessons, I would sit in this tiny little place where the vending machines were with a laptop and write. So <laughs> I think, you know, just sort of um, mostly now, of course, I write at a, a desktop com- computer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so do, sometimes I like to do a draft in longhand yeah. just to change it up. Do you write every day? I, I try to touch it every day, though I'm not. Um, I remember Lee Smith uh Mm-hmm. A writer I admire has said once, he says, you know, I don't always have something to say. Do you? <laughs> and uh, I feel that, you know, sometimes I feel like it's it's good to let it alone and okay. to maybe read something or, you know, do something, get something in. Well, that's we're going to talk a little bit more about where you get your ideas from. But since you mentioned reading, uh, quite often authors will say to me that they get some of their ideas or some of their inspiration from other authors. Uh, do you find that to be true for you as well? Oh, yes. Oh, definitely. Do you have um, any in particular? Well, in uh, short fiction, uh, there's some, some writers that have inspired me to take greater chances. Uh, Kelly Link mm-hmm. is one, and uh, Jeffrey Ford. We both recommend them very highly. Okay. Um, yeah, go ahead. No, that's okay. All right, so let, let's let's jump in a little bit further here. So your biography, you taught in both fiction and science fiction, and you've written both. Um, mm-hmm. Talk to us a little bit about the difference uh, between writing fiction and writing science fiction. Well, I think that, you know, fiction, there's not really that much difference, except, of course, in science fiction, part of it is um, history that hasn't been written yet. Um, is you know, you want to have something that makes sense that's plausible on, on science fiction, but it's not currently real. Uh, or it's so far, you know, even something like if you have prehistoric story in which, you know, we're pretending to know how cavemen talked or what they, how they structured their societies. That's a science fiction mm-hmm. premise. We, we, you know, and, um, but even in realism, you've got to create the world to get it right. Now in science fiction, the, the character, the, the setting in a way, the world of it becomes like a character, um, that has to be developed because you can't make assumptions. Everybody knows it. 
So. Yeah. It, well, I think uh, Susan Feldman, a writer we both know once, I think, told me, um, with science fiction, you have a little bit more of the world that you have to create. Does that sound about right? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm working on a historical fiction. Oh, okay. Uh, speaking of writers of influence, I mean, Suzanne's really wonderful historical fictions have inspired me to, to work on one myself. And Good. it's very similar to science fiction, that you have to you know, find those details from that past you're trying to create to mm -hmm. make it real to the reader. Okay. Well, I'm going to make an assumption, and if I'm wrong, I want you to tell me. But I'm going to assume that the majority of readers of science fiction today uh, would be a younger audience. Is that accurate? That's an interesting question, because uh, it seems to me at the uh, conventions and so forth where you see science fiction fans, that it is sort of a graying oh, okay. population. Okay. And uh, I know that, say, the subscribers to uh, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction and other stalwarts, you know, they're, they're aging. Uh, my cohorts seem to be aging. I'm 74. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I've tried to stop it, but it just won't. Um, but I think the young are particularly interested. I and, mean, of course, I've taught a lot. Now, I do get a lot of young writers uh -huh. in fiction workshops, and it's not confined to science fiction. We, we can, they can write whatever they want. Okay. And an increasing number wanting to write science fiction or wanting to write fantasy. A lot of them want to do comics mm -hmm. or something like that, too. So yeah. you know, when you're writing a, a science fiction novel, like the one we're going to talk about, The Soothsayer and the Changeling, are you uh -huh. targeting a particular audience, or are you just assuming whoever picks it up, uh, that's great? Well, um, and of course, I guess to be a little technical here, I call mm -hmm. I would call Soothsayer and the Changeling fantasy. Okay. In right. that it is, you know, based on kind of a magical mm -hmm. premise, even though the subject is very scientific, it's really about climate okay. change. Okay. But, um, so, yeah. I'm, I guess in that book, more than most of my books, I'm, I'm, tar I'm trying to get at that very difficult subject from a different angle. And so I would say people interested in climate issues and thinking about it uh, might find the book interesting. Yeah. Um, Go ahead. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, that's what I noticed. And, that's why I was. That's what prompted yeah. my question in part. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about that novel. Okay. Where do you get the idea or the ideas for a novel like The Soothsayer and the Changeling? Wow. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, you know, it's a big. It's a big, complicated uh, book. It so is. It came from um, a lot of things. The character of the soothsayer, mm -hmm. who is somebody who gets some healing abilities from a horrific accident right. actually came from a, um, this guy I met years and years ago. I had a persistent medical problem. I won't go into it, but I tried everything. And my rather eccentric former mother-in-law wanted uh -huh. to go to this fellow who had a similar backstory and had a healing touch. And so I went to him and scoped out the scene and thought how weird it would be to be him because mm -hmm. he was, yeah. And so from then came this notion of some regular person who, through no fault of their own, suddenly finds themselves with uh, an ability that's extraordinary. 
Right. Um, so did you start off thinking you might write a book just about the soothsayer? And then somehow the changeling comes about after that, the other character? Well, they kind of they kind of grew up together. Okay, all right. Because that notion of the I've, I'm, I'm um, I've got a PhD in literature, and I love the Renaissance and the whole idea of the changeling. This uh-huh. often fascinated me, and, and so and also with this idea of again a person who, uh, in this case, she's grown up with extraordinary mm-hmm. abilities and experiences, and has no ex- one to tell her what in fact. It is, and she tries. You know, maybe I'm an alien, maybe I'm this and that, and she settles on the changeling. Okay, well, can since we're talking about it, can I get you to to read a, an excerpt uh, from the book? Okay, and if you need to, you know, any premise or or, or preface, excuse me, uh, for it, that's okay. fine too. Um, I'll I'll just start with. Uh, Get it going here. There's uh, well, there are. There's. I'm going to read up a couple of epigraphs here. Okay. This is for the novel. A dream you dream alone is only a dream. A dream you dream together is reality. It's Yoko Ono. And in dream began responsibilities, and that's William Butler Yeats. Mm-hmm. And there, and I use the dreams throughout. You um, do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, so this is so this is um, an opening here. This mm-hmm. is uh, uh, really kind of opens up Danny's story. He is the soothsayer, and I think there's enough here uh, okay. to get you. Okay. Oriented. It's summer in Richmond. The black asphalt shimmers in the heat. Two men with leaf blowers strapped to their backs are blowing around cigarette butts and candy wrappers and trash from the McDonald's on the corner. Their twin clouds of exhaust converge on a third man driving a tiny car with a roaring vacuum waiting to suck up the detritus. The men rev the leaf blowers like two teenagers about to race at a stoplight. At the corner, the bus idles diesel. The city is in the process of switching to natural gas, but they've run out of money and grants have dried up. This is Danny's stop. He works in the strip mall. He walks through the clouds of dust and carbon monoxide and diesel and burning flesh, trying not to breathe too deep, trying not to breathe at all. He makes his first appointment just in time. It is probably his client is growing uneasy, sitting across him and waiting for her answer. Half or half hours over, and so far she has nothing to show for it since she's posed her question seven five minutes in. Above her head, on the wall, behind her, the clock's Second-hand sweeps. The clock face is a painted tree, broad, spreading crown, gnarly roots. The store's logo, same as on the T-shirt Danny wears, only in this room for his part-time soothsayer job. Three afternoons a week at the Tree of Life bookshoppy, as he says it. He has other jobs, though not at the moment. Things are slow. It's been a weird day. The news full of another freak storm barreling up the East Coast. Though by now you'd think they wouldn't be freak anymore. It won't turn out well. A perfect storm. But his client doesn't want to know what he sees about that. You don't have to be a soothsayer to know that. One of his other clients is right in the middle of it, unless she followed his advice a couple of weeks ago on a beautiful cloudless day to make other plans. 
He saw her drowning in the lobby of her hotel when the unprecedented storm surge hits. He can see things in the future, really. If you're his client, you can believe him now or later. It makes absolutely no difference to him. Here's the thing. He can't always see what you want him to see or even remotely in the neighborhood. He sees what he sees. Some woman wanted to know about her new boyfriend, for example, but her cat Rudolph was dying. The boyfriend was another loser. Danny couldn't catch a glimpse of his sorry ass past next week. But Rudy adored her. Danny had to tell her the truth. Say some sooth. Forget the boyfriend. Get thee to a veterinarian. <laughs> That's wonderful. Now, that, now, let me ask you this about Danny in particular, because I thought this mm-hmm. came through. Um, so he can see the future somewhat, but it's mm-hmm. not necessarily a good thing, is it? Well, in most of the time, in fact, it's it's been it, it seems like it's a bad thing yeah. to him um, because he sees the future and perhaps he can help someone deal with that, but mostly he alienates people mm-hmm. um, and and causes problems. And it's only through his uh, alliance with um, Christy right. um, that he comes to understand and to use his ability in a positive way. Now, from a character development standpoint, I mean, I've had many authors say this, the perfect character where nothing goes wrong and they don't carry any weight is really not that interesting. And what I found interesting about Danny is that, that this, is, this is a weight that he carries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Okay. All right. So there are also some interesting observation in the book um, that, um, you know, I, I think they're current. Um, maybe they're slightly political. And I thought I'd get you to comment on a few of them. Actually, mm-hmm. the first one's in the prelude where you write, quote, if you want to change people, you have to become one of their desires, close quote. Can you explain that one for us? Well, one of the things I and I guess this applies so much to climate change. Mm-hmm. I feel like people care about life on a very particular level. I love my life in a way because I love my wife. I love my dog. Mm-hmm. I love my neighborhood. Uh, it's very personal, and yet we're asked to address this big thing. Uh, that seems also abstract, mm-hmm. um, the biosphere, you know. <laughs> right. So, right. Uh, and here, uh, that's, you know, I'm trying to, to, to make these particular lives at stake. Um, a book I want to recommend that tries to do the same thing is uh, uh, Bewilderment mm-hmm. um, by Richard Powers, a beautiful right. novel. Right. Well, let me let me touch on one or two more quotes, and then we'll we'll come back to the to uh, some other aspects of the book. So I, I mm-hmm. found this interesting because I don't know whether you were making a political or a philosophical observation. Although I like both of them, uh, you wrote at one point, "quote consumption." You have one of your characters say, "consumption mm-hmm. is the national religion." Close quote. And another mm-hmm. character says, uh, "quote I'd, he'd rather go to a funeral than a Walmart on a Sunday." Close quote. Um, now, when you're writing fantasy, okay, or science fiction, mm-hmm. how do you decide mm-hmm. how much current observations, uh, current reality, if you will, do you put into the, the story? 
Well, in this case, of course, I'm trying to get that very elusive notion of sort of day after tomorrow. Mm -hmm. We're not really much in the future. It's pretty much like now. Right. Um, Now, I do think, um, of course, I don't find uh, the issue of climate change in our consumption economy at all right um disconnected so um and that that there's so much empty consumption that goes on and and does seem to be you know to fulfill emotional needs very much like a religion and so yeah and there was i i can't remember exactly which characters there but um at the moment. I think but, it, I think it's uh, at Danny's that says I'd rather go to a funeral than a Walmart on a Sunday. I think. Right. Okay. 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 Which I, which I yeah, can... and he is, of course he's 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 a very he's become a very minimalist in his life. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah. Well, I understood it on a couple of levels. <laughs> yeah. Right, um, right. All right. So one other one other reference that I want to touch on. You you even in this book have some biblical references to Abraham and Isaac. Is that something that you do in? In all your writings and all your fantasy yeah, or science I've, fiction, I've got a lot of yeah. I'm I'm um, I've always been fascinated by uh, religion mm-hmm. and um, and have you know had a kind of a lifelong religious quest. Ended up, um, I guess most I had to call it something Taoist, but uh-huh. you know by American standards an atheist, uh, but. I have a, a great deal of, I don't know, I've been, I read the Bible when I was young from cover to cover, and I was, you know, explored religion a lot. And mm-hmm. uh, I feel like it's uh, it's one of our most important mythical, mythological languages, if I can yeah. use that no, without no, being I, too offensive. No, <laughs> yeah, I understand what you but mean. But it's, you know, mm-hmm. it gets at these, you know, like the Abraham and Isaac story is just fundamental. Um, you know, we just been through uh, the Easter uh, week, and you know that story is you know just a, a, a gripping story, whether you believe a believer or not. You know, and yeah. so yeah, I draw upon that a lot. Well, and and I've heard other writers say something similar, and they'll say that so many of our stories have roots in biblical stories, even if they're not mm-hmm. religious stories. Would you agree? Right. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. All right. And I, and I feel like it's a shame that, you know, if people people should learn the Bible like they would learn, you know, I also think everybody should read the Odyssey, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I agree. Uh, All right. So. Well, let me get you to read another excerpt for us, if I can, uh, from the book. And we're talking okay. to Dennis Danvers about his book, The Soothsayer and the Changeling. Okay, I'm going to do something I guess you're, in a way, not supposed to do. And I'm going to read the, the very ending. Okay. Uh, now, throughout, various characters have a dream. Right. And um, this one, the section is called Everyone Has a Dream. And um, it's only a little over a page. Okay. We wake choking from the smoke, from the stench of death and lifelessness. Everything is normal. It was just a dream. Clocks tick, deposits strip, the old dog scratches, only outside it is oddly quiet. No cars, no planes, no leaf blowers, no air conditioners, no jackhammers, no sirens wailing. Just birdsong blowing in the wind, the goddess laughing. 
tree limbs swaying in the wind, the shimmer of leaves. We hear through the thin walls our neighbors crying. We feel in our tiny prisons our own tears blowing. And birds singing, singing, singing. It's a little frightening, that chorus. Not because we don't know why they're singing, because we do. The sun has risen, is rising. Our dream has chased the dawn around the world, fleeing the night and the night that lies ahead. It's a revelation. Everything's different now. Doubt is gone. Denial is impossible. We have finally reached what now? We open our eyes. We rise and go out the door onto the porch, the balcony, the pasture, the shore, the narrow alleyways, the towering wood, the cavernous street, the mountainside above us, only sky. All our machinery is still for the moment. The world is not. It scampers, ambles, scuttles, slithers, hops, gallops, flutters, and walks, gathers before us, behind us, surrounds us, in fact. Everywhere, our eyes looking back at us, great and small, thousands upon thousands of eyes, from the hawks to the anthills. The hawks whistle, an elephant trumpets, a rat laughs, a snake slithers in for a closer look to make sure we understand the question. Now that we have dreamt our future, what now, humans? But now, now, this very moment passes over, the future never comes. The crows cavort above our heads, muttering their delight. Cars lining the street for as far as we can see begin the short process of rusting in the sun. But that's okay, because we don't need to go anywhere but where we are. Here, Earth, you step into the light. Awake. Excellent. Let's let's talk a little bit about uh, with the time we have left about character creation, if I can. Um, okay. You have you have two uh, dominant female characters in the book, uh, Christy and Alyssa. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have? How do you go about writing for a female character and creating the female persona? Uh, I well. I've liked doing female characters, and my first, uh, you know, published novel mm-hmm. of a prospective character was a woman who turned into a wolf, um, a real wolf, a mm-hmm. werewolf story. And I like the fact that it's other than me, that I'm not going to write just another, you know, aging mm-hmm. bald guy in his 70s. So, um, so there's that. Um and I just feel the, the in this case, the, the feminine <laughs> perspective is is extremely important. Mm-hmm. And there, there's, there's, you know, there's resonance with women I've known, um, you know, um, throughout my life mm-hmm. uh, that are echoed in these characters. Do you ever, um, when you oh, write, when you oh. write, a, I'm sorry, when you write a female character, do you ever say go to your wife or some female friend and say, "Read this. Tell me if this sounds genuine or authentic." Uh, yeah, some, I have. Yeah, female uh, readers. I've uh-huh. been, you know, writing, writing groups and such. Okay. That um, I get feedback from from women, certainly. Okay. Well, authors yeah. will sometimes tell me that if they create a good character, like Danny or um, mm-hmm. Christy or Alyssa, uh, the character, some, as the character has developed, the character sometimes tells them where to go or what to where to go, not in a bad way. In other words, where to go with the story. Uh, have you had that experience? 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's his favorite in the changeling. In fact, uh-huh. it's in, in the structure of the novel. In early drafts, all these characters were first person. And it's structured a little differently now. And the only one who's still first person is Christy. Mm-hmm. And she will tell you from the beginning that it's her book. Uh, so, and it really, this this sort of uh, character who um, called the shots mm-hmm. was probably, that's the, probably the strongest manifestation of that experience I've had is with her. Okay. Do you, uh, yeah. do you live, this is going to sound crazy, but I actually just had a short story writer in a couple of weeks ago who said, you know, to me, Mike, I, I live with my characters for months before I put them on paper. Do you go through that process or do you start writing out the character and then it starts to develop from the writing? Uh, I think it's I think it's both. Um, now it depends, I think, on the character. I did a book called The Watch. Mm-hmm. It's in first person, and it's the narrator is Peter Kropotkin, who is a yeah. real person, and he wrote abundant things himself. Famous anarchist, and I, you know, famous anarchist, and uh, I highly recommend the book. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's that, uh, but he time travels to modern day Richmond, okay. and. Um, but he, um, doing that character, I read his his uh, autobiography, uh, his pamphlets, and I was, I was all, he he wrote it in English, which is rather amazing. He also wrote it in Russian. But um, I wanted to try to get his voice, right, and and his habits of thought, and so that was definitely a case of um, what do they call it? method acting, right. Of, of, thinking like him for, for weeks. Kind of changed me. Like, yeah, okay. So. All right, so mm-hmm. uh, let's let's end with this. In, in the book, it seems to me that uh, despite all the back and forth, ultimately you have a positive message, or am I being uh, too Pollyanna about that? I, d- I do have a positive message. Now, I think that the, the not positive part is very hard. Mm-hmm. I think the main change that needs to happen is between you know, is between our ears. I mean, it's in our heads that, you know, we have it in our control to uh, mitigate the the worst effects of of climate change. But we can't do it next week, you know, or sort of in dribs and drabs. And um, so if if we can change (laughs) um, our minds about this and actually act, then, then I'm very hopeful. Um, if we can't, well, I think the UN has spelled it out fairly well. Yeah, I think so too. There's plenty I can, you know, uh, what is it, the, the oh shoot, the Unlivable Earth or something like yeah. that. I may yeah. have got the title wrong. I mean, there's what, plenty of descriptions of, you know, what inaction would be. Right. Uh, and that, and I think those sort of alarms don't work necessarily. That's why I like don't look up. Right. Right. so much going at it from such a different direction. Okay. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, you've been listening to the Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tusa, and today I've been really privileged to speak with author Dennis Danvers about his book, The Soothsayer and the Changeling, which you can pick up uh, on Amazon and elsewhere, I assume. Uh, Dennis, do you have a website or anything like that you'd like to pass on? I, I have a website. It's... Um it's it's not the busiest thing. <laughs> I, I uh, Facebook has kind of put a dagger in the, the old blog, but okay. uh, 
you know, yeah, on Facebook. Facebook. Okay. All right. Well, listen, I really appreciate you being on the show. All right. I appreciate it. 